I mean, genuinely worried that you might not make it out of that situation. Hopefully, most of you don't have stories like that, but I'm sure that some of you do. A few years back, my wife and I got into that kind of situation that gave us a little taste of that kind of fear. Some good friends of ours, the husband had a terrible moral failure within the family, but the family was desperately trying to keep that silent. And they had three adult daughters still living at home and working the family business. All of them felt trapped and wanting to get out of the family. Two of them were uh, getting married that summer, but the third one, there was no uh, prospect for her to get leave the family in this abusive situation. So Kristen and I hatched a plan. Now, mind you, she's an adult, and we checked with the local sheriff and the abuse hotline, but we decided we were going to go and break her out of this family and let her come and live with us. So we flew into Portland to celebrate this marriage of the, the second daughter, the, the last one that summer. We surprised our friends. They had no idea we were coming, and we had been estranged from them for several years at this point because he was sliding down because of his moral failure. And so we came under the pretense of celebrating their marriage, the wedding, not telling them our real motives. We were deceiving them. And so the evening went and explaining that we couldn't stay. We had a flight out that evening. We left with the third daughter. Her friends had helped her pack her bags, and we hid her in the trunk of our rental car, and we drove uh, to the airport. Unfortunately, before the 40 minutes were done to drive to the airport, he had discovered what had taken place and began to call us. He put all of the pieces together somehow, and he began to call our phone off the hook. And I remember feeling that kind of fear, not knowing what this man who I knew was capable of great harm and danger could do. We got to the airport and we're frantically trying to get past security so we can be sort of safe. And, and we see him pull up outside the airport and begin running inside. And all of a sudden, a police officer walked by. And I explained the situation to him. He helped us get through security and he stayed with us until we were safe on the flight. But I remember driving to the airport and really for weeks afterwards running through the scenarios of what might happen if I came in contact with this man. I remember that, that fear and I remember encouraging myself by rehearsing Psalm 59 that we read today. That psalm that, that John read for us, that psalm David composed given the situation that we find in 1 Samuel 19 as he as Saul sends somebody to kill David in his own home, David pens those words. And listen again to verses 1 through 2. He says, Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. But he ends this way in verse 17. O my strength, my strength. I will sing praises to you, for you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. Were it not for David pinning that Psalm 59, we would not know much of what David thought 
during the events of chapter 19 because most of the action is focused on Saul and showing us that as Saul slides farther away from God, his behavior becomes worse and worse. And just as Kristen and I were helped along the way to escape from this abusive father, so too David is helped by members of Saul's household to escape. So as we turn to 1 Samuel 19, I want you to pay attention to the ways that God delivers David from Saul's plots. For we find God in His providence raises up others to help Him, but He also directly intervenes to deliver His servant. And thus we learn a key component to the faith. If God is for us, who can be against us? Do you believe that? I hope that as you meditate on the life of David, that will be a reality for you too. Because that motivates and sustains David as he's driven from the heights, the one who has slayed Goliath, the one that people are praising, all the way to driven to the wilderness, fleeing for his life. And he is sustained and motivated because he knows that God is with him. So let's read this text this morning together from 1 Samuel chapter 19. And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. But he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. And Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillows of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? Michael answered, Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? 
Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is at Seku, and he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naoth and Ramah. And he went there to Naoth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel, and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this, your word. And we ask that you would open our eyes so that we may behold wonders therein. For we pray this in Jesus' name. And amen. There are really four scenes to this episode. The first is Saul and Jonathan, and then Jonathan, or then David, goes out again to battle, and Saul, uh, when he returns, attempts to kill him with the spear. Finally, there's the scene with Michael in David's own house, and then at the end, the fourth scene is with Samuel at Ramah. And as uh, we end this uh, uh, section in 1 Samuel, this is also the last sermon we will have in 1 Samuel until the new year. Next week, we will begin our sermon series through Advent, which we will be looking at the Gospel of Matthew, the narrative of Jesus' life. So it's fitting for us to end because this is also the end of the section that began in chapter 16. We, have, we are bringing this section to a, a close. You'll remember in chapter 16 that Samuel goes to anoint David as the king. And we've watched as David rose in the house of Saul, and then Saul became envious and jealous, and now David is descending and is no longer, will no longer be in favor within Saul's court. And so, as, um, as uh, envy cannot remain hidden, but erupts and has a way of drawing others in as well, Saul's plans, which have been mostly private, he has thought to himself, I want David dead. Now he makes it explicit. He tells Jonathan and he tells his closest servants, I want David dead. This is not the private machinations of a a wicked ruler, but now it is public vendetta. David is public enemy number one. David has got to go. At this point in the story, it seems Saul is not aware of how close Jonathan is with David. Remember, Jonathan makes a covenant with him. He loves him. He strips himself of all his royal ambition and clothes David with that. Saul makes his plans aware to Jonathan, and Jonathan makes those plans aware to David. And they hatch a plan so that David can hear Saul's plotting. 
And what Jonathan hopes to do is vindicate his father and restore David to the place that he was at in the court. And he wants David to hear all this. So he tells him to hide in the field. I'm going to talk to my father about you and you will hear. And that's what happens. They go out and they talk and, and, uh, and Jonathan confronts his father. And because of this, he ends up changing his mind and making a vow to protect David. That as long as the Lord lives, which is forever, David will not be harmed. He, the, the, the most amazing, momentous thing in this whole section, this first episode, is that Jonathan confronts his own father and urges him not to sin. Although the power of the sword was in the king's hand, killing someone unjustly, whether or not you are the magistrate, is always a sin. And Jonathan reminds his father of all that David has done for Israel, defeating the Philistines, removing the reproach of Goliath, how he himself rejoiced in David and his triumphs. And so he convinces Saul not to go through with his plot. Well, it's remarkable that God had raised up such a man such as Jonathan to deliver David at such a time as this. I want to draw your attention yet again to the striking character of Jonathan. While David is everywhere on everyone's lips praised, Jonathan shines through again and again for his quiet faithfulness, almost unseen, not only against what we might call his natural inclinations, right, to protect his own position as the, the crown prince. He goes against that. He sets that aside to love and care for David. Moreover, he's faithful to the covenant that he made with David, taking significant risks to his own life to confront his father. But let's go a bit further. Notice in in verse 4 and 5, Jonathan's statement to his father. He defends, sure, but he also admonishes his father and and provides yet again a chance for Saul to repent. It's not easy to rebuke your father in a winsome way that leads to a favorable outcome. Fathers are not easily taught by their sons. Jonathan takes a considerable risk in rebuking not only his father, but the king. This is the highest authority in the land. Doubtless, there were no other servants of Saul's who would undertake such a risky move. The human heart recoils against being confronted in sin. Well, would he have been honoring his father if he said nothing? If he did not warn Saul against rushing headlong into sin? He would not. But cowardice often keeps us from pressing in. Now this should be done in wisdom. Paul encourages Timothy, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. But I wonder if more often we use this as an excuse not to say anything at all. Fear of the outcome keeps us from calling sin, sin. And allowing our brother or sister in Christ to persist in it. No one knows this more than me. Partly it is within my job description as a pastor to rebuke sin when I see it. 
yet my own desire to be well-liked and to avoid conflict often keeps me from saying anything. So I'm preaching to myself here. The courage Jonathan points to is one that first takes the holiness of God seriously. Sin is first and foremost always against God. But secondly, that kind of courage has a deep love for the person which motivates and guides their prosecution of his sin. Paul says in Galatians 6, 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Why? Because you are the same sinful person in the same mercy and grace of God. And so you can go to your brother or sister in Christ because you are a recipient of that mercy. And you don't want them to persist in sin. Why? Because sin leads to death. You want to restore your brother or sister. One Puritan, Richard Baxter, summed up the kind of urgency that I'm talking about when he said, I preached as never sure to preach again, as a dying man to dying men. He got up in the pulpit and he said, this might be my last time to address you. Because we are all dying. Your brother or sister in Christ is dying too. But we act like we have all the time in the world. I dare say every conversation could be your last. I I had no idea that when I spoke with Rick Miller in the lobby there, that would be the last time that I spoke with him. I was going to have lunch with him again. You don't know your moment is, your life is so fragile. And so is your brother and sister's life. And yet you see sin in their life and you don't say anything. Because you don't want to offend. You don't want a bad outcome. You don't want them to think you're prideful or you're better. But you're not loving them if you allow them to continue in sin. Jonathan wouldn't love his father if he he let him pursue this diabolical pursuit of killing David. If he just let him do it, Jonathan would be just as culpable. Jonathan does confront his father and he wins peace for David and repentance for his father. This is striking. I mean, this is amazing. You read this and you think, Saul listened to the voice of John. Saul hasn't listened to any voice of anyone, especially when God is speaking. But now he listens to, how do you know that you won't have the ear of your brother or sister in Christ and they might not come to repentance? You sit with your doubts and you don't say anything, but you don't know that God is stirring their heart to respond. 
as Saul did. Now, unfortunately, this peace is short-lived. David again has success. And again, that green monster of envy consumes Saul. And again, David is playing the liar. And Saul has his spear and he tries to kill him. But David flees for refuge in his own home. Only to find that he is not safe there either. But it's not just Jonathan that God raised up. But, Jonathan, but God also raised up Michael. Now, a man's home is supposed to be a place of safety, but David finds a trap has been set for him there. Remember, Saul wanted David to marry Michael so that she would be a snare to him. Saul thought, you know what, I've got, I've got my own man embedded in David's house. I can, get, I can do whatever I want. Little does he know that the snare... Michael, he had set, becomes his own snare. Or the pit that he dug for himself, he falls in. Michael readily divulges Saul's plan to David that if you do not leave tonight, Saul will take you in the morning. But more than just warning David, Michael helps him get away, letting him down through the window. And after he's gone, she creates an elaborate charade to fool the servants of Saul. And then she misleads Saul himself so that David can slip away. She makes somehow that they are convinced that David is sick. This is sort of a humorous scene. I picture it kind of like a Disney movie. You know, the people who are sent to kill David are simpletons. They're like, duh, what do you want me to do, boss? He's sick. And then Saul's like, you know what, go and bring his whole bed to me and I'll kill him myself. And they go up and, oh, he's not there. He's he's gone away in the night. First Jonathan, now Michael. Is there no loyalty in this family? And Saul questions Michael. She plays innocent to protect herself. If he's willing to kill David, there's a reasonable chance that he would kill Michael or so she must have thought. And, and in fact, in the next chapter, we'll see he tries to kill Jonathan. Saul is off his rocker. He's not thinking clearly. It's here that I want to point out something important. The Old Testament writers do a lot of showing and not a lot of telling. They don't comment on the morality of the characters. They show them in either a favorable light or an unfavorable light. Saul is a scoundrel. He's painted as a scoundrel throughout this whole episode. But Michael is not. She's seen favorably. And so we come to this, we ask ourselves the question, if, does this introduce a conundrum? Is it, is it possible that we will find ourselves in situations that warrant us breaking the law of God? And here I'm specifically thinking of lying. The deception. Is it lawful? Is it okay the way that Michael responds? Often this, the classic example of this, of course, is lying to Germans that Jews are hiding in the basement. Is that wrong? Two things are happening in the story that need a closer examination. The first is Michael making up the bed to seem as if David is sleeping there. This is what we might call a nonverbal deceit. 
And the other involves Michael's response to Saul about why she deceived him, which seems to be a direct lie. In World War II, there was a special unit called the Ghost Army, whose specialty was tactical deception. The Ghost Army, with some 1,100 men in all, ended up staging more than 20 battlefield deceptions between 1944 and 1945, starting in Normandy two weeks after D-Day and ending in the Rhine River Valley. Many of those performances, or illusions, the men appropriately preferred to call them, took place within a few hundred yards of the front line. They had blow-up tanks, plywood uh, jeeps, they had uh, sounds of men marching in the forest that made it seem like they had many more people or were in a different place than they actually were, so that the Axis powers thought that they were bigger and more of a threat, and they would retreat. These are all clearly lies or deceptions meant to fool the enemy. But are they sinful? Do they break the intent of the commandment? You see, the ghost army resembles Michael's deception of setting up a dummy David in bed to fool Saul's servants. Now first, I think it is an error to say, as some Christian ethicists do, that we are justified in setting aside uh, lesser requirements of the law to keep higher requirements. You see, the reasoning goes often like this. If your lie will preserve the life of someone, then it is justified. Because to preserve life is a higher requirement than the lower requirement of not bearing false witness. Now, I think to argue this way is to introduce a contradiction in the law of God, making it inconsistent. But the law of God is the character of God, and God is always truthful. And with Him, there is no contradiction. The problem is a faulty definition of the ninth commandment. Just that it is not always breaking the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder, if the civil magistrate orchestrates the death penalty, or if someone is killed in self-defense, or in just war. God makes those provisions in the law for all those ways of killing. So it is with bearing false witness. There are instances when a lie is not bearing false witness or a deception is not bearing false witness. Scripture is replete with these kinds of examples. The Hebrew midwives in Egypt, Rahab and the spies. Earlier in 1 Samuel 16, we saw that God himself tells Samuel to deceive Saul. He says, if Saul asks you why you are going to anoint David, you should say, I'm going to a sacrifice. Now, that's not a lie, but it's not the whole truth, is it? What is Samuel doing? He's going there to anoint David. But God tells him, I don't want you to tell the whole truth. You are going to sacrifice. That's not a lie. But you are the ultimate reason you're going is to anoint David. There are many more occasions in Scripture, and in none of these cases does the Scripture condemn them for their deceptions. In fact, the author of Hebrews commends Rahab for her faith in Hebrews 11. In all these cases, these people use deception to mislead somebody. But is deception always a lie? 
Is it a lie when the quarterback fakes a handoff? What about a fictional story? Is that a lie? What about hyperbole? We love this in our family. It took me forever to get here. What about flattery? Does this dress make me look fat? Husbands? No. It's a resounding no. I like the theologian John Frame's definition of a lie. A lie is a word or act that intentionally deceives a neighbor in order to hurt him. It would be absolutely absurd for a soldier deeply entrenched in hiding to begin yelling at the enemy, Hey, we're over here! I know we're hiding from you, but I don't want to lie. Go ahead and aim your fire over here. No, the very essence of tactics is to deceive. Michael uses misdirection to Saul, stall Saul's servants from pursuing after him. But what about her response to Saul's question in verse 17? This seems to be a direct lie. Why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? Michael answered Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? Is this a lie? There's nothing in the text that suggests that it is. In fact, it's highly probable that David told her to say that. I know that Saul's going to come looking for me. If he does, this is what I want you to say. Say that I said, let me go. Why should you die? So what does Michael do? She said, hey, David told me to say this. She's speaking truthfully. Is it the whole truth? No, of course not. She has misdirected Saul so that David can slip away. None of this suggests that the ends justify the means. We're not pragmatists. Nor is there inconsistencies in the law of God. There may come times in your life when you have to deceive someone to save your life or protect someone else's. And the first thing to remember is that this deception is done for good motives. Motives that are trying in good conscience to uphold the law of God. God tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that... No temptation has befallen you but what is common to man, and he will provide a way of escape. The story is told in Corey Tinboom's The Hiding Place of the time when the Germans came in looking for their brothers who were hidden in a potato cellar under the kitchen floor. The trap door was hidden by a rug with a kitchen table on top of it. When the Germans came crashing in looking for the boys, Cocky, one of Tinboom's nieces, is questioned. This is how Ten Boom tells the story. She says, Do you have brothers? The officer asked. Yes, Cocky said softly. We have three. Twenty-one. How old are they? Twenty-one, nineteen, and eighteen. Upstairs, we heard the sounds of doors opening and shutting. The scrape of furniture dragged from walls. Where are they now? The soldier persisted. Cocky leaned down and began gathering up the broken bits of cup. And the man jerked her upright. Where are your brothers? The oldest one is at theological college. He doesn't get home most nights because... What about the other two? Cocky didn't miss a breath. Why, they're under the table. Motioning us all away from it with his gun, the soldier seized the corner of the cloth. At a nod from him, the taller man crouched with his rifle cocked. Then he flung back the cloth. 
At last, the pent-up tension exploded. Cocky burst into a spasm of high, hysterical laughter. And the soldiers whirled around. Was this girl laughing at them? Don't take us for fools, the short one snarled. Furiously, he strode from the room, and minutes later, the entire squad trooped out. She didn't lie. They're under the table! But then she mocked them, and they thought she was joking. You see, God always provides creative ways for us to tell the truth, because God is a God of truth. We need not pit God's law against God's law. It is consistent. Obviously, lies designed to harm our neighbors are clear violations of the Ninth Commandment. But Scripture is not so wooden that it condemns the actions of Michael when she withholds the whole truth so that David can slip away. The care and concern Jonathan and Michael show to David prove a valuable point. If God is for you, who can be against you? God in His providence has orchestrated it so that David has these allies that in his moment of greatest need, God uses these strategically placed people to deliver him from his enemies. But as the next scene teaches, sometimes God breaks in to intervene directly, in this case, by his spirit. David, fleeing from his life, for, from his home, makes his way to Samuel at Ramah. What has been evident through this whole thing is that God, God doesn't remove David's suffering. But he is with David in the midst of it. He's there with him, providing for him. He doesn't insulate him from suffering, but he's with him, guiding him. And he's always providing a way for David to escape. What a blessing to have a godly mentor like Samuel that he can run to and explain and discuss all the perplexities of life. Like his father-in-law trying to kill him. When Samuel learns from David all that Saul has done, they go and live at Naoth, which is most likely a neighborhood in Ramah where all the prophets live. Saul learns of this and he dispatches men to go and get David to kill him. But upon reaching David, they encounter the prophets prophesying with Samuel as head over them and the spirit rushes upon them and they begin to prophesy. Now, it's not clear exactly what's happening when the Spirit overcomes these men, but what we see is they are prevented by the Spirit from carrying out their original mission. Instead, they're caught up in the worship of God. Finally, after three attempts of Saul's goons trying to bring David back, Saul goes himself. Saul goes, you have to wonder what he's thinking. What is he thinking about? He hasn't seen Samuel since he made that blunder where he sacrificed without Samuel being there. And Samuel said, you will never see my face again. Meaning that God was no longer with Saul. He clearly doesn't realize that he's trying to go against the creator of the universe. The God who spoke and the world came into being. The one who continues to uphold the universe. And Saul's single-minded pursuit of David is lunacy. Yet some of us pursue sin in the same way. We do the same thing but expecting a different outcome. That's the very definition of an insanity. 
We show the same reckless abandon when we pursue sin with that single-minded focus, hoping that this time will be different. This purchase will make me happy. That promotion, finally I'll be satisfied. Just one more website and looking at that woman online. Then I'll experience pleasure. All of them are lies. We pursue sin not remembering the outcome is always the same. The desire almost always ends in bitter regret flooded with the guilt and the shame of realizing you have yet again been duped into believing and doing the same thing you have always done would lead to a different outcome. Bringing you ever closer to lunacy. All along Saul's journey, God has provided ways for Saul to repent. Every thwarted plan to execute David stood as an open call to cease foolishness and return to God. But each episode ends with Saul rejecting those offers leading to a hardening of his heart. Like Pharaoh, who over and over again had chances to repent. He doubled down on his sin. And God hardened his heart and gave him over to that sin. The wages of sin is death. That is, the outcome of your labor is eternal separation from God. A place so hideous, so dark, so unimaginably painful, it causes you to shudder in fear. Whatever the ravening thoughts that raged in Saul's mind on the way to Ramah, once there, he is no match for the Spirit's power. The Spirit comes upon him and he strips off all his clothes and prophesies before Samuel all day and night. And this scene forms the ending of Saul's journey. Remember, he began with the Spirit rushing upon him and him prophesying. And then quoting this parable, is Saul also among the prophets in chapter 10? But now the the narrator brings that back in. We have seen how important clothing is symbolically when Jonathan strips his royal robes off and puts them on David. Now, too, the Holy Spirit strips Saul of his royal robes, symbolizing that the office of a king has been stripped from him. His repeated failure to rule under the authority of God has disqualified him for office. They attempted the same with our Lord. They cast lots for his clothes. And as he hung on the cross, naked and bloodied with the charge over him, King of the Jews... Only there, the symbolic act could never strip Jesus of his title as king. You see, Saul proves he's not the Lord's anointed and is stripped of his office. But Jesus is stripped of his office and proved that he is the Lord's anointed by rising again from the dead. Saul is diabolical in his pursuit of David, the Messiah, just like his father, Satan. I don't want to press the imagery too far, but there is a warning here for all of us. Clothing does not just mean office, but also symbolizes righteousness. To be naked after man's sin was to be ashamed. But to be clothed was to have your shame covered. Saul experiences a reversal from being clothed, covered in righteousness, to being naked uncovered and ashamed. The Christian life is really 
learning how to be comfortable in your new clothes. Learning to wear them properly. As Paul says in Colossians 3.9, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Paul uses the language of clothing to describe life in Christ. You can't do the things you did when you weren't clothed in Christ, and you must do certain things now that you are. But what happens if you never learn to wear the clothes properly? What if they never come to fit you? What then? The author of Hebrew warns in Hebrews 10, 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? Saul never wore the clothes rightly. He never got used to life in Christ, partly because he was hell-bent on killing Christ. I'm not saying that you can lose your salvation or that somehow Saul was justified and lost that status before God. But what I can say is Saul was circumcised. On Sunday, he went to church. He said his prayers. He gave tithe. Not too much, but he gave some. He was part of the covenant people of God, which was the promise of clothing. But now, through the Spirit, it is shown decisively what Saul is. The emperor has no clothes. Are you resting in your baptism? Trusting in your church attendance? I mean, you go to a Reformed Presbyterian church, for goodness sake. It's got to count for something. But it doesn't. If you're not clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, then like Saul, you will be exposed and shown to be the fraud that you always were. The problem with Saul is that he thought it was all about him. Oh, he tried doing it God's way. But it was never... But it was, it was always him trusting in methods... It was never him trusting in God. Saul never had faith that led him to trust in God. It was more like a tool for his own self-actualization. One step up to advance himself. But God always regards our self-actualization as nakedness. You can never actualize or realize your potential on your own. Try as you may. Your sinful nature will always get in the way. But Jesus is not hindered by sin. He is perfect. He is the potential everyone is attempting to actualize. And the good news of the gospel is that by faith alone, God is remaking you. He is actualizing you to be like His Son. And the only way to be found on that last day, not naked, is to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ alone. 
Nothing else will stand the scrutiny. Everything else will be burned up by His gaze. The good news of the Gospel is not try harder. Saul did that. The good news of the Gospel is to rest clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we would be found clothed not in our self-righteousness, which is filthy rags, but in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Strip us of every time that we try to clothe ourselves in our own righteousness. And help us to rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. To trust in Him alone for our salvation. So that we don't get off on diabolical plans like executing the Messiah. Foolhardy as Saul is, he is a picture of us all. Father, keep us from straying from the true path, from following Christ, and from resting in His finished work. For we pray this in His name. Amen.